Hi, this is Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian at the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. You're listening to Speak Your Peace, a podcast where writers, historians, contributors to Utah history share their insights and discoveries about Utah's history. Are you interested in some recent issue? You look back in the past, there's usually something that help you un- that can help you understand better just how things are the way they are today. We're particularly interested in things that will make history accessible, important things, important stories that can help you understand better your life. If you only have one place to get your history fix, Speak Your Peace is that place. Today, our guest is Dr. Paul Reeve, University of Utah Professor of History. We've been talking about race and Utah's history. I've asked him uh, back a second time here to talk about uh, the project entitled CenturyOfBlackMormons.org. And in it, I uh, we were talking about uh, just this idea that two second or third or fourth generation Utahns who are also African Americans uh, uh, have a story in this database. Uh, Paul, tell us a little bit more about uh, just some of the surprises you found in the in this evolving work. So one of the things we do in the database is we uh, attempt to document location of baptism. So the database includes a map feature where we just pinpoint uh, the location of baptism. And one of the surprising things that emerged, uh, there's an international component uh, to these baptisms. But for the Utah story, uh, a a significant number piling up in Utah. Uh, So I think we're up to around 25 uh, baptisms in Utah. And what I guess I didn't anticipate was the fact that we would be documenting second, third, fourth, and even fifth generation Latter-day Saints. Uh, so it's not merely the, the, those pioneer uh, uh, converts to the faith, but they pass the faith on. And, for example, Jane Manning James, uh, the last known descendant uh, that we have in the database who died as a practicing Latter-day Saint passed away in 1998, and that was a fifth-generation descendant of Jane Manning James. The same thing goes for a prominently known um, black Latter-day Saint priesthood holder, a man by the name of Elijah Abel, who comes to Utah in 1853, uh, and we have... Uh, one of his descendants who passes away as a practicing Latter-day Saint in 2007, who's in the database, she was baptized in 1930. So that's the cutoff of our 100 years. Um, and so, in other words, we have this multi-generational nature of the faith and and the baptisms of those descendants are taking place in Utah. The other thing that I should uh, just point out, obviously there are... Uh, uh, black immigrants or, or black migrants to Utah who aren't members of the LDS faith, and their stories are crucially important to Utah history as well. Uh, this particular project, we're, we're simply trying to um, document those of the Latter-day Saint faith, but we also trace faith transition. Uh, so if they leave the Latter-day Saint faith, we document that as well. And uh, so those are a part of uh, the stories that are included as well. And, and some of those black Latter-day Saints leave and transition to become Baptists in Utah or members of other uh, faiths in, in, in the state. And uh, obviously they're 
their stories are, are ever as much as important as, as those that we are including here. And we trace those faith transitions out of uh, the Latter-day Saint faith uh, when, when we can document that as well. One thing I think is interesting is just how permeable uh, interaction with the church is and people coming and going, multiple generations who are Utahns, who, um, <clears throat> in fact, in some ways, I think that's characteristic of Utah is that uh, there are um, many different uh, 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 generations that are engaged in different religions, and and then sometimes they, you know, mix it up again. I mean, that's that's a Utah story, and that's the case here with these people whom you've you've um, gathered information on. Do you have a story or two about some of these people that would be fun to hear? Sure. Uh, uh, your listeners may be interested in, for example, Ned and, and Susan Legrone. Uh, Ned and Susan Legrone uh, were enslaved uh, in the South before the Civil War. Uh, after the Civil War, they decide in 1870 to migrate to Utah because their relative, um, Samuel Chambers, had converted uh, as an enslaved man in the South. Uh, and after he was freed uh, after the Civil War, he had saved up enough money and he wanted to bring his wife and his uh, then relatives, Ned and Susan Legrone, and they all came to Utah in 1870. And by 1873, Ned and Susan Legrone also converted uh, and became, uh, they, they presided over a multi-generational uh, black Latter-day Saint family. Uh, they were pioneers in their own right, um, formerly enslaved. They were um, a part of a group who performed baptisms for deceased ancestors or deceased relatives in the Salt Lake Endowment House uh, when they were allowed to uh, go to the endowment house and, and perform baptisms by proxy for uh, their relatives. And, and uh, the interesting thing for Ned and Susan is that uh, Susan was baptized in behalf of Ned's first wife, and Ned was baptized in behalf of Susan's first husband mm -hmm. uh, in those rituals performed in, in the endowment house. Um, and then, like I said, they pass the faith on to uh, their children, and uh, you have second, third, and fourth uh, generation members of the Legrone family who are already in the database. I think we're up to about uh, 10 or so Legrone family members in the database, and there will probably be an additional 10 uh, who will be in the database by the time we're done. Uh, so it's a name that you know, listeners may never have heard of, but prominent uh, black pioneers to Utah in the 19th century. So when I when I um, when I th think of this, I also think about the kind of mechanics of your database. This isn't just hearsay information. This is not just uh, second or third hand. There's a very rigorous process to uh, substantiating, gathering, uh, again, getting back to that idea of primary sources. So it's a it's a slow burner. I mean, this isn't going to explode into thousands of units or entries. No, that's right. Uh, so we do have a meticulous process, and uh, you know, people might not recognize the, the number of hours that goes into even uh, just the creation of one of the biographies. But yeah, we have a a, a system that we follow um, a, a certain amount of. Um, 
information that that we require, uh, primary sources to support it. Um, all of that is footnoted, as well as any primary source that we can get permission to make publicly available, we load into a documents reader at the bottom of each biography. So each biography contains the primary sources that we have been allowed to make publicly available. These include census records, uh, marriage records, um, LDS baptismal records, death records. Um, sometimes we have uh, the words of the people themselves. If they left any written records behind, uh, we absolutely try to include that and uh, make those publicly available. Uh, so it's it's uh, the best of the craft of history is as as much as we can uh, provide it in a in a public forum. We try to include it um, with the hope that the public will then make sense of these stories for themselves and tell them, uh, you know, uh, in, in their own ways. That's, that's why it's a public history project. Well, so uh, again, it's centuryofblackmormons.org or dot. That's correct. Yeah, centuryofblackmormons.org. Paul, you have also um, been involved so much in the study of 19th century uh, race relations. Uh, just this, this, how race permeates everything in the 19th century. And, um, your award-winning book, um, Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. I, I want to have you talk about that thesis, about the thesis of this book, and, and just how uh, Mormons were kind of considered also in a sort of race sense. Could you talk a bit about that, please? Sure. Uh, so the trajectory, uh, the arc of the argument in, in the book is, is that Mormons in the 19th century were denigrated as not white enough in a very fraught American racial context. And uh, in response, they attempt to claim whiteness for themselves. And the most significant way you can claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century is in distance from blackness. And that comes at the expense of black Latter-day Saints distancing themselves through racial priesthood and temple restrictions from their own converts. Uh, and by the 21st century, Latter-day Saints were deemed too white. So from not white enough to too white, and by the 21st century, uh, Latter-day Saints respond by attempting to claim a internationally and uh, ethnically diverse racial identity for itself. And I think the best example of that was uh, the I'm a Mormon media campaign that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints launched uh, in an effort to claim this racially diverse and international identity uh, for itself in the 21st century. So uh, the book traces the trajectory of, of that movement across time and space. So from not white enough to too white by, by the 21st century. Well, and as I, it was a wonderful book, by the way. And um, Thank you. Uh, to me, what I thought was interesting is um, you gathered all this nuance. Um, uh, you know, the one thing about culture and um intellectual pursuits is, is there's, everyone has a perspective. There's always some theory or some overriding thing that is influencing you. And I thought you described not only nationally how America was seeing race, but also those here in Utah, uh, those who were Mormon, um, it, it race permeates the 19th century. Um, and, and I have to mention here in the 21st century that I see no, there is no sense of race. There is just the human family and these constructs that we built 
and so much sadly still continue to, you know, these hierarchies are just completely indefensible. But in the 19th century, um, Mormons were thought of to be, in a sense, their own race, that they somehow through polygamy and isolation and intense behaviors that to someone else in America, they might perceive Mormons as something of a different race. Talk about that. So even people in the medical and scientific community uh, looked in on Latter-day Saints of the 19th century and even argued that polygamy was giving rise to a new race. Uh, they said it was degraded, it was deformed, uh, that, in fact, uh, it was creating sterility in the next generation of Latter-day Saints. Uh, if we could only cut off the tide of uh, converts from Europe, uh, then uh, Mormonism would solve itself because uh, eventually uh, the, the new race would die out. They wouldn't be able to reproduce. The problem is that they were so Latter-day Saints in the 19th century were seen, seen as so successful in winning converts from Europe that it was bringing new quote unquote blood into, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the, the genetic mixing that was taking place in, in polygamy. And so it was perpetuating the problem into the future. Uh, the United States state department in 1879 under the Hayes administration attempted to cut off Mormon immigration. Uh, so that's how significant it, uh, influenced American politics in the 19th century. Uh, Mormons were seen as uh, a problem in America. It was not merely a suspect religious group, but a suspect racial group. The fear was that Mormons were allowing race mixing to take place, uh, especially uh, amongst polygamous relationships. And so the book includes a variety of political cartoons that demonstrate the way that outsiders in the 19th century imagined Mormon polygamy. The Mormons were a threat to the greater American population. That, uh, it, at least that's how some people were seeing it. That's exactly right. Uh, they looked in and they imagined that uh, Latter-day Saints were facilitating race mixing. And if you, you have to understand the power of whiteness in this American racial uh, context. Whiteness means access to political, social, economic power, uh, obviously in the 19th century, but still very much so in the 21st century as well. Uh, and uh, John T. Calhoun on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848 said, democracy is the government of a white race. So when outsiders are describing Mormon polygamy as facilitating race mixing, they're not merely suggesting that polygamy is destroying the traditional family. They're suggesting that polygamy is destroying the white race and making it unfit for democracy. Democracy is at stake, in other words. It's not mm -hmm. merely a suspect religious group, but American democracy is what is at stake in the minds of uh, outsiders. And that includes those who wield power in Congress. And it helps us to understand uh, their fears and why you have these increasingly stringent uh, string of anti-polygamy legislation passed in the 19th century. Um, once again, it's not merely about religion, but also, in my estimation, uh, it, it, it's about race. And you can't really um, understand the Latter-day Saint story with inc without including this racial component. One other thing I think related to race is uh, the LDS Church's involvement with the local uh, Native Americans. Uh, speak a little bit about just how that factors into 19th century Utah. Sure. So... Uh, the accusations 
uh, about Mormons not being white enough included a fear of them mixing with with native peoples. Uh, and anytime Latter-day Saints were driven from their homes, there was a corresponding uh, accusation that they were conspiring with Native Americans against true white Americans. Uh, so once again, fear of uh, race mixing was also involved there. Now, the difference um, on the inside for Latter-day Saints was that they saw Native Americans as fallen descendants of ancient Israel in need of racial uplift, and they viewed it as a part of their mission uh, to bring about that racial to help uplift. Help them rediscover their, um, their lost history. That's right. Uh, and they will borrow from Book of Mormon language to simply call it uh, help them to become white and delightsome. So intermarrying amongst Native Americans, according to Brigham Young, would help bring them towards whiteness. But if Latter-day Saints intermarried amongst people of black African descent, it would bring a racial curse upon them. So uh, both of those racial groups treated very differently uh, in Mormon theology in the 19th century. It's, it's what's surprising to me, particularly for most people in 21st century, 2019 Utah, is they're maybe not even aware of this. And in understanding this, it helps you, I think, see um, just how we got where we are today. Um, uh, our, our whole resistance, the, the nation's resistance to Utah becoming a, a state, um, the... Um, uh, the, the way in which uh, maybe even today we kind of hunker down and behave in a very um, misunderstood way. These stories help us understand that. Oh, I, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, obviously I'm a historian, so I'm, I'm biased in that regard, but uh, you really can't understand the present without understanding uh, the past, and it, it really informs uh, us and teaches us, hopefully, valuable lessons. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the fraught nature of race as a social construct. Um, and that's really what, uh, you know, this study lays bare is if you can racialize a group of largely white Latter-day Saints as somehow not white, it should help us to understand that race is what we make up in our mind. It's not a biological reality, but it's just simply what we've used to create a hierarchy uh, to disadvantage some groups. Some way of creating the other. Exactly. You create them as another, suggest that you are therefore justified in discriminatory policies against them. So in closing, Paul, uh, I see the power of history as uh, sometimes um, being painful for people. Uh, sometimes it can make, make you angry but um, or help you understand and see vistas far and wide. Uh, having that opportunity to uh, examine the past, uh, read some really good peer-reviewed, careful, thoughtful, defensible history, um, can help make life uh, richer, better. Um, in this political milieu, when there's so much about uh, fake news and so on, tell us as we close, just how does history, how does the pursuit of evidence help us to... Um, make better lives for ourselves and for our nation and for our state? Well, I think simply uh, history is geared towards uh, sourcing. Uh, so we understand what the nature of the sources are, who's writing them, from what perspective. It helps us to think critically. It helps us to cut through uh, those kind of accusations that we see floating out there, uh, fake news. Uh, well, 
What does that actually mean? Why is that term being deployed in the way that it's being deployed? Who's deploying it? Uh, what is that suggestion actually uh, about? Um, why are they fearful of what is being uh, defined uh, by them as fake news, right? So I, I think just the critical thinking skills that history brings to the table are incredibly valuable in the 21st century as we are bombarded with a variety of sources. Paul, this is wonderful. We so appreciate your time today to be a part of uh, this uh, podcast, uh, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah history share their insights and discoveries about Utah history. Uh, in the next segment, um, we're hoping to speak with uh, uh, Richard Turley, um, who was the uh, former uh, assistant uh, church historian. We hope you'll tune in again, and uh, thank you so much, Dr. Paul Reeve, for being part of this, this uh, program. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Hope you'll tune in again. This is Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian. And if you need your history fix, come to speak your piece. Thank you. <laughs>